When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Hidden Histories. Today's podcast is with the wonderful writer and historian Nicola Tallis. Nicola is most recently the author of a brand new biography on the Tudor matriarch Margaret Beaufort, and in this podcast, Nicola brilliantly sheds light on the true story of Margaret's life, the difficulties she overcame at such a painfully young age, and how she found herself at the head of the Tudor dynasty. It's a great story, and Nicola is brilliant, so I hope that you enjoy this podcast. Nicola Tallis, welcome to Hidden Histories. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. It's so lovely to be talking to a medievalist. I get to kind of really geek out on on this period, so I'm excited about this one. Um, But, you know, saying that I'm kind of very um, rooted in the 14th century, I know very little about Margaret Beaufort, considering she is the descendant of subject of my my book. So your most recent book, this one of three that you've produced, is Uncrowned Queen, The Fateful Life of Margaret Beaufort. Beaufort. Yes. Like many women, I feel that we only really hear about Margaret from her, the point of her marriage. And she was so young then, was she 13? That's right, yes. She was, well, she was probably 12 when she was married to Edmund Tudor and 13 when she gave birth to his child, her only child. So, yeah, painfully young. Do we know anything uh, about her really prior to this? We know that she was born on the 31st of May, 1443, at Bletsoe Castle in Bedfordshire. And we know that she had quite a happy childhood. Um, She was raised primarily by her mother, Margaret Beecham, and surrounded by a number of half-siblings. But she had had quite a, a tragic start in life, if you like, even though she would never have remembered this, because it was just a few days prior to her first birthday that her father, John Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, died. And, you know, some sources mentioned that possibly he died at his own hand as a result of a dismal French military campaign that had ended in his disgrace. So, yeah, a troubled start, you could say, for her. But um, she was raised, as I say, primarily in a rather happy environment, surrounded by her half-siblings and her mother. And how did the arrangement for her marriage at such a young age come about? 
Um, well, what had happened was that initially, Margaret had been the ward of the Duke of Suffolk and had been betrothed to his son, John de la Poole, and she was actually married to him as well when they were both very, very young. But Henry VI had broken off this this marriage in 1453 and had instead granted Margaret's wardship to his two half-brothers, Edmund and Jasper Tudor, and it was with the intention that Edmund would make Margaret his wife. Was that the De, de la Pole, because there was the big political coup, wasn't there, under the sort of middle of the reign of Henry the Henry the Sixth. Is that am I thinking of the right Delapole family? Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay, right. Yes. Yes. Now you I are. Know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what was her what was her marriage to Edmund Tudor like? Unfortunately, we don't know a great deal about their marriage. Uh, we know that it was it was relatively short, but um we know that the couple spent most of it in Wales. Um, They took up residence at the former Bishop's Palace of Lamphy, which was not far from Jasper Tudor's stronghold of Pembroke Castle. But unfortunately, we don't know a great deal about their personal feelings towards one another or, you know, the exact nature of their relationship. But of course, within a fairly swift period of time, Margaret had fallen pregnant. But sadly for her, perhaps, when she was in around about the seventh month of her pregnancy in November 1456, her husband died, probably of the plague. So it threw her into a moment of a huge, huge uncertainty. And whatever grief she may or may not have felt at Edmund's loss, she was forced to put that to one side in order to ensure her own safety and that of her unborn child. And so she was at this point, you say around 12, maybe not even 13 yet. I mean, that is still, even in medieval standards, a really young age to be giving birth. I mean, is that not quite rare in, in kind of, royal or at least noble society? Yeah, absolutely. She was very painfully young. And even though the church decreed that 12 was the legal age at which a girl could cohabit with her husband, many of Margaret's contemporaries still considered this to be painfully young and often chose to wait for a few years. And we know that Margaret was physically underdeveloped at this time and her friend and later confessor, Bishop Fisher, um, later remarked that it seemed a miracle that at that age and of so little a personage, anyone should have been born at all. So we know that as well as being immature in years, she was also not yet fully physically developed. So Henry was was born that was in Pembroke Pembroke Castle in Wales that's right yeah Pembroke Castle in January 1457 um how involved was she in his early life in his infancy again it's quite difficult to to say because the the sources regarding Henry's youth are quite sparse but we do know that from the moment of his birth despite Margaret's physical immaturity she 
formed a very, very close attachment to her son and was extremely protective of him. And it was almost like he gave her life purpose because he was to be the sole focus of her life for the rest of her life. So we can assume that she spent her earliest days, or sorry, her son's earliest days, nursing him so far as protocol allowed. But it wasn't long before she realised how serious her situation was, given that the Wars of the Roses were about to come into full swing at this time. And she was without a husband. And so it was in 1458 that she actually formed um, another a marriage alliance. And this was with Henry Stafford, the second son of the Duke of Buckingham. And there's no doubt in my mind that this was partially done with the intention of trying to protect Henry's interests and ensuring that there was somebody there who could perhaps protect him and, and offer him a bit more security as he grew up. Um, but it seems quite unlikely, actually, that, that the young Henry went to live with his mother and his new stepfather. There's no evidence to confirm this, but it seems to have been the likeliest scenario that he, the, that Margaret's son actually remained living at Pembroke Castle under the care of his uncle, Jasper Tudor. So Margaret, if that was the case, then Margaret didn't actually physically get to see him that much during his youth at all. And what was Margaret's position within the wider context of the Wars of the Roses? So what side was she on and why was she um, why was she such an important female figure um, within the dynamics? She was the sister-in-law of Henry VI and she was staunchly Lancastrian and she would remain staunchly Lancastrian for the rest of her life. Um, so family loyalty was extremely important to her, but she was also pragmatic enough to know which battles to fight and which ones to, to set aside and, and when to lay low. And um, when Edward IV became king, for example, she recognised that it was prudent in order to ensure her family's safety to be seen to bow the knee or bend the knee to him, if you like, and appear to be loyal and, and not cause trouble. And this seems to have been a policy that was supported by her husband, Henry Stafford, who was also a Lancastrian and came from a, a loyal Lancastrian family, but but equally chose to, to reconcile with Edward IV and to, to try and live in some kind of peace in order to protect um, protect his family. So Margaret very much, she was astute enough to to wait on the sidelines for better days, if that makes sense. And, and yes, sort of keep a low profile in order to ensure her family's safety. And her son was sent away, wasn't he? Was it to France? Yeah, that's right. So that was in the aftermath of the Battle of Tewkesbury in 1471. And by this time, Margaret's uh, her third husband, Henry Stafford, he died on the 4th of October 1471, possibly as a result of battle injuries that had been inflicted at the Battle of Barnet. And 
with Edward the Fourth's decisive victory at Tewkesbury, whereby the Henry the Sixth's heir, Edward of Lancaster, was was slain, and and afterwards Henry the Sixth was also murdered. I think Margaret deemed it prudent for Henry also to to take refuge and was very concerned for his safety, even though nobody considered him as a contender for the throne at this point. And uh, several contemporary sources say that it was Margaret who urged her son to flee abroad to seek safety. And I think that they probably are quite accurate. I think it probably was at her urging that he did so. And um, so he and Jasper Tudor set sail, um, aiming for France. Um, But through the interference of strong winds, they actually ended up in Brittany, where um, they were the guests of the Duke of Brittany. Or I say guests, but they were sort of basically kept in a, a kind of comfortable house imprisonment if you like i think she's always accused of scheming and plotting yeah is this when i mean a is there actually any evidence for that and b do you think this is around the time that that began i think that there is no evidence whatsoever that margaret had designs on the throne for her son until 1483 when Edward IV died unexpectedly and of course within a matter of weeks Edward's son Edward V had been deposed. Um, He and his brother of course famously known as the princes in the tower were incarcerated in the tower by their uncle who declared himself Richard III and um, you know the boys are, are never seen again and I think it was this scenario that prompted Margaret to see an opportunity for her son and it's at this point that she did start plotting to to place Henry on the English throne and Again, like I say, I think that this was really the result of the unexpected events of 1483 because there wasn't, there isn't any evidence that she, um, she had, you know, designs on the throne or that she, she felt that God had ordained that her son should be king from the moment of his birth, as it's sometimes depicted in, in popular culture. There's no evidence for that whatsoever. I think, you know, she noticed that, or she saw that, Richard III was unpopular and she seized her moment from there, really. Who was she up against at this point, at the end of Edward's reign after his death? I mean, how do, this was really turbulent, this period in history. How do you think she survived this? Do you think that she was a bit of a sort of shadow figure? Or do you think that it was the fact that she was a woman that enabled her to kind of come out of this the other side un, relatively unscathed? I think I think she was just very lucky to be perfectly honest um because her her husband her fourth husband by this time Thomas Stanley was in a position where he Richard III couldn't afford to risk alienating Lord Stanley and um Margaret had been plotting against Richard III to um to place her son on the throne and when Richard found out about this he immediately placed Margaret under house arrest under the custodianship of her husband and he took all of her lands from her and again gave these to her husband but he didn't take any further action against her at this time and I think that that is because he was 
worried about alienating Lord Stanley and didn't want to lose someone who he perceived as being a powerful and, and valuable supporter. So I think really it was only her husband's relationship with Richard III that saved her. Um, and, you know, otherwise, I think there's no doubt that he would certainly have attainted her in Parliament as a traitor and, you know, who knows what other steps or other action he may ta- have taken against her. Lord Stanley, was he was he a marriage out of more political promise rather than actual care or admiration or love? Yeah, there was certainly no real personal motivations behind it because after the Battle of Tewkesbury and when when Margaret's third husband, Henry Stafford, died, he, um, again, it sort of left Margaret in this vulnerable position where her son had fled abroad, she was on her own, and Edward IV knew that she came from a, a Lancastrian background and that her sympathies were very much Lancastrian. And it was essential for her, really, to have a husband who had Yorkist sympathies or a Yorkist affinity who could, again, keep her safe and who could perhaps use his own power to the advantage of Margaret's son, you know, in order to to offer him protection. And Thomas Stanley did have a place at Edward IV's court. He was also a, a widower who had several children, so there was no need to try for more children with Margaret. And, you know, Margaret was a wealthy heiress. She had a great deal of land and property. So on his side too, she seemed like a very attractive prospect. And it is very clear that Margaret was working with Stanley to try and effect a reconciliation between Edward IV and her son, Henry. So again, there's this sense of her trying to do what she can to keep her son safe and using her husband as an intermediary in order to try and do this. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
So it was a, a marriage that was agreed under her with her own autonomy and she had a relative level of control within it as well. Yeah, absolutely it was, yeah. So what happened around the time that, um, around the time of the Battle of Bosworth, what was her involvement within that very famous moment in history? Unfortunately, the sources are frustratingly vague and um, fragmented, as they always are at all of the key critical moments. <laughs> but we, we do know that Margaret had been busy drumming up support for Henry in England and uh, was also sending him money. And there are also indications that there had been conversations between her husband, Lord Stanley, and, and her son, and that uh, Stanley had certainly perhaps verbally offered Henry some level of support. And when Henry landed at Milford Haven in August 1485, we know that as he began to march down towards Leicestershire, he was hoping that his stepfather would join him. And again, there is an indication that they they met a couple of days before the battle took place, Battle of Bosworth, and that Stanley sort of gave him some assurances of his support. But Margaret's particular actions at this time, um, we don't know exactly. I can only imagine that she would have, you know, begged and and pleaded with her husband to support her son. Um, I'm sure she would have made her opinions very clear to him. She was very opinionated. And, you know, ultimately, of course, she she celebrated in Henry's victory, which, of course, brought great advantage to them all. Um, but her precise involvement in the events leading up to it is unfortunately frustratingly unclear. OK, so Richard III was killed at the Battle of Bosworth and buried in York. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> and then... And then, and then Henry was crowned. So, what was Margaret's role from this point? I mean, that must have changed massively for her. Yeah, it was a huge, huge transformation, and one that neither she nor Henry could ever have envisioned as a possibility prior to fourteen eighty three. And yeah, it really did transform Margaret's life in a way that she could never have you know, imagined in her wildest dreams, really. And she immediately became the most important woman in England and remained so until her son's death. She immediately took the title of My Lady, the King's Mother. And in the first Parliament of Henry VII's reign in November, so again, just a few months after the Battle of Bosworth, she was declared a femme sole, which gave her the right to act independently of her husband. Um, And this was hugely, hugely unusual because femsole status was usually only granted to unmarried women. So it really does serve to underline the level of power and prestige that Henry was prepared to, to give his mother and, you know, all by right of his recently acquired kingship. Do you think that she had a significant amount of authority within his court, within his council? I mean, is it true that she sat she sat in the King's Council? It's true that she advised him on political matters on occasion, and she did also act as his unofficial lieutenant in the Midlands, and um, she set up 
her administrative headquarters at her palace of Collie Weston, which was just outside Stamford. So she there, she had her own council there to advise her. And it was there that she began governing and administering justice on the king's behalf in the Midlands. So she would oversee all sorts of cases and, you know, people would apply to her for help. You know, for example, she there was one case brought before her concerning slanders that were made about her son's heritage, which had emanated from a tavern in Colchester and and all sorts of things. So what is clear is that Henry definitely trusted her judgment and knew that she was a very capable woman who um, who clearly had some great ability and he was very happy for her to use this. Okay, that's interesting. So she so she probably didn't have as much kind of control and had this very matriarchal position as she might have been depicted to have, but she still was given an elevated level of independence and status as to maybe naturally a, a queen or a, a um, dowager queen or a mother, mother, so to speak, would be. Yeah, I think I think reports of her having this kind of overbearing status have perhaps been exaggerated a little bit. And I think that there's no evidence to show that, you know, there was a bad relationship between her and her daughter-in-law, Elizabeth of York, for example. There's nothing really to suggest that. The, the evidence for that comes from one source. Um, and other, there are many other sources that indicate they had quite a good relationship. Um, but at the same time, she wasn't prepared to be cast into the shadows. And that's where the title of my book, Uncrowned Queen, comes from, really, because she did begin to behave as though she were a queen in all but name to all intents and purposes. Uh, but what's clear, I mean, she wouldn't have been allowed to do this without her son's connivance and agreement. So the fact that he was very happy for her to play this role, again, you know, it does sort of suggest and, uh, you know, indicate what a close relationship they had. One question I want to ask is she's quite... Um... I mean, she has been depicted as being incredibly pious, yeah, almost fanatically so. Was this the was this the case? And I mean, how did she exercise that piety? Or was it? I mean, was it beyond the norm? Yeah, I think it's fair to say she was incredibly pious, and it was something that she uh, she very much prided her on, and an image that she hugely cultivated. Also, I think, and when you look through her account books, which are in. St John's College in Cambridge, you do get a real sense of just how pious she was because she was ordering bits of silver and and sending them to the Pope in Rome to be blessed. And she was ordering religious jewels. She had a, a huge collection of chapel plate. She had children of her chapel as well. And, um, you know, she gave huge sums of money and alms and she also did her best to be charitable as well. So, you know, she was she was paying the debts of a priest who was imprisoned, all sorts of different acts of piety and things like that that she was doing. So, yes, she was very, very pious. I think it's sort of been portrayed in a negative way 
in in popular culture and as you said you know it's come across as though she was sort of fanatical and some sort of zealot and I don't think that that's necessarily the case self-flagellating right yeah that sort of thing yeah like there's her her confessor bishop fisher does talk about the fact that she spent a lot of her time engaged in prayer and you know we we do know that she supported churchmen and she founded chantries so i suppose it was it did go above and beyond the norm but i also think that part of this was because her wealth allowed her to demonstrate her piety in that yeah, way yeah i was about to say i mean really it was a case at this point that the wealthier you were if you were you know religious beyond just very sort of basic levels of conventional piety it, you were able to spend that sort of money on exercising that your your protestations of faith exactly so when it came to female power in this period do you think that she was a trailblazer or do you think that it was more of a case of survival and opportunity because she's been so portrayed in the past to sort of be powerful sometimes actually even like petulant yeah and I just want to know if you think that it was a case of she just was just led the life that was given to her but made the most of the opportunities that she had yeah, I do. I ve- I do think that she made the most of the opportunities that she had. I think right from the start, she she learned a lot of valuable lessons about how insecure a woman's position could be and how dependent in many respects they were on men, but how unreliable this was because you know, she had lost her father before she reached her first birthday. A few years later, she lost her male guardian, the Duke of Suffolk, when um, when he was murdered in 1450. She then lost her husband, Edmund Tudor, to the plague. You know, she she had these these male protectors around her who who all kind of disappeared really and I think she learned some very valuable lessons from that about taking taking responsibility for her own future and we see this in her from a very early age when we know that you know shortly after her son's birth she's 13 years old and she was you know negotiating for a marriage to Henry Stafford herself so I think very much she she made these opportunities for herself in some ways and I think when her son became king that was when she really sort of saw her moment and decided to take control of her own life and her own identity and recognise that she didn't need any male protector at this time. You know, that's why she's declared a femme soul, um, because even though she she retained a good relationship with her husband, Thomas Stanley, at that point, they they basically effectively separate. And she began to work very much, you know, for herself and her own ends. And I think, yeah, she she took that opportunity to to really come into her own and 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 make yeah make her her own identity as an individual more recognized and and known that's really interesting and i think she's such a fascinating she's such a fascinating character and there are there are women um like her in history you know you look at people like, when i think of her i think of Eleanor of aquitaine as well 
there's yes, some similarities yeah. there and actually just sort of show how much the that the women were involved within the kind of day-to-day management of like the crown yeah but also I, what I find most extraordinary to be honest is how she survived the entire thing and sort of maintained her her strength and I wouldn't say ambition because like like you say I, I think that that's been something that's been more popularized but but definitely definitely yeah. her strength and her um her ingenuity as well yeah absolutely and I think you know something else that I find really interesting about her which I got a greater sense of when I was looking through her accounts is that she appeared to me to be someone who was so different from the representations of her that that have been portrayed in popular fiction and and indeed in the surviving portraits of her because this was a woman who loved to spend her money on expensive clothes and jewels you know she liked perfume she liked accessories she loved to be entertained she was really fond of gambling so you know we do see this real sense of a woman who yes she was very pious yes she did work on behalf of her son and she exercised power in his name but she was also very pleasure loving and she she really did love the finer things in life as well and you know was able to to use her money to be able to enjoy life to the full mm-hmm. yeah exactly you don't really often see the um the fun side of her do you (laughs) (laughs) no exactly she always you know she she doesn't come across particularly favorably in popular culture unfortunately recently but I do think that actually when you go back and, and look at the sources and we're quite lucky that there are quite quite a lot of um, of sources for for Margaret, which is quite unusual for a woman of that time. But when you do actually go back and look at them, they paint quite a different picture. Well, thank you so much, Nicola. That was really really interesting. It was such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. What um, can you remind people of the title of your book and and um, its availability, and also where to find you online? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, thank you very much for having me. The title of the book is Uncrowned Queen, The Fateful Life of Margaret Beaufort Tudor Matriarch. And um, I mean, it's available from all good bookshops. And I can be found on Instagram under Historian Nicola and on Twitter at at Nicola Tallis. Super. Thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 